Good morning, my sweetheart church. It is indeed a momentous Sunday in many ways, isn't it? And yet, what do we do? We come together as we do on every Sabbath day, and we worship God, and we declare the hope that is ours in Christ. We greet each other in joy and hope and uh, the belief that in God there is always a, a great and good future. I am Pastor Mark Toon. If you're visiting with us, I'm really pleased to welcome you to the, believe it or not, the kickoff of another program year uh, at Chapel Hill. I was sharing with our prayer group that meets with me for prayer before service. Um, 35 years ago today was the first sermon I preached at this church down on the other end of the building. It's hard to believe. And so I'm glad you're here uh, with me to uh, launch this new program year together. I also have noticed a bit of a change. I saw a lot of uh, cheek kissing going on uh, in, in the foyer, so I assume that you were here for Pastor Ellis's sermon on greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, at our life group on Friday morning, the first three, I'm not kidding you, the first three men who walked through the door kissed me on the cheek. I thought, Ellis, what have you done? <laughs> Cindy I, and I uh, snuck away for a week uh, in a certain tropical state, uh, and it was great, lots of golf, lots of Shave ice, lots of walking to work off all the shave ice, a lot of snorkeling. But there was one paddle in the afternoon that was particularly memorable uh, to me. I was swimming back to shore when suddenly a dark creature pulled me underwater. And all I could think about were those shark attacks that we've been reading in the headlines. And there are a lot of tiger sharks in the area that we were staying. So I clawed my way back to the surface, and I made it to shore uh, without any damage, except for my butt muscles, which were strained because they were puckered up so tight for the moment. <laughs> and then I saw the creature that had assaulted me. It was a monstrous black dog. And his inattentive owners were very sorry. They said he just wanted to play with me. <laughs> so as my heart rate dropped back down, I asked, what was the dog's name? And they said, it's Kolohe, which means rascal <laughs> or mischief maker. I thought, well, he certainly lived up to his name. 2,000 years ago, another mischief maker was pushing people underwater. But not by surprise, they asked for it. This guy was considered a rascal by those in power, but he didn't care. He was on assignment from God, and crowds of people streamed out to him in the wilderness by the Jordan to hear the preaching of and to be baptized by a man named John. This morning, we launch a year-long, probably year-long plus, sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. That might sound long to you, but if those of you who are with me in the, back, in the days of Mark, we spent three years in the Gospel of Mark, so this is a piece of cake. Uh, we're going to launch into this series on the Gospel of Luke. We're going to save the Christmas part of Luke's story for Advent, and so today we are going to kick it off with Luke chapter 3, the story of John the Rascal. Turn with me, if you will, to the first portion of that text, John, Luke, Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Luke is the first of a two-volume work. The second volume, you know, is Acts. Very good. You scholars, I should have known you would know that. So it is Luke-Acts, really, it's a two-volume work. Luke was a physician. He traveled with the Apostle Paul, uh, and he was also a historian, as we discover in the early verses, which we will read at a later day. But according to those first verses, Luke read many accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, and surely among them was the Gospel of Mark, because we see a lot of parallels between Luke and Mark, and we think he drew a lot from that a smaller and earlier gospel. He also, we are told, by him did interviews. He talked to many eyewitnesses because he was not himself an eyewitness of these accounts before he wrote his own account of the life and ministry and death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Actually, Luke is the only one who deals with the ascension of Jesus. The gospel of Mark's ending is probably not Mark, and, and so Luke is the only one that tells us the account of the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. I love this gospel. Now, I typically say this about every book I'm reading, because at the time, I'm most in love with that. So after these 35 years, you know how many favorite books I have. They're all my favorites, but this is a favorite for me. Luke um, tells more parables than any other gospel writer, including the two most famous parables. I quizzed you on that in my blog. The Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. Surely the two most famous parables Jesus ever taught. Only in Luke. Imagine how bereft we would be if we did not have those two magnificent past stories. No gospel mentions the Holy Spirit more than Luke. He is the Holy Spirit gospel. No gospel does more to honor women than does Luke. No gospel cares more for the dispossessed, the disenfranchised, the poor, than does Luke. Luke is the gospel for the outsider. It's possible that Luke was a Gentile, a non-Jew. If so, he was the only one in the, in the Bible, only author in the Bible. But it is certainly the case that whether a Gentile or not, he is kinder to outsiders of the Jewish faith than any other gospel writer. So all of these things make Luke special. But preeminently, no gospel is more concerned for the lost. His theme verse is chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Read that with me, would you? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the I want you to memorize that address, Luke 19.10. We are going to return to that again and again because it is the anchor piece 
Many believe it to be the centerpiece of Luke's uh, gospel. Uh, Luke devotes an entire chapter, chapter 15, to the recounting of how someone finds lost things. You remember this chapter, the finding of a lost sheep, the finding of a lost coin, and ultimately the finding of a lost son. Really, the finding of two lost sons, because both the prodigal son and the obedient elder son, both of them, as it turns out, were lost. And his point for that chapter and this repeated theme is this, every single soul is precious to Jesus. Every single lost soul matters to the Lord Jesus. My daughter Rachel, who is a pastor and a professor and a dean at a Christian school back in North Carolina, she has, she has taught on Luke. She, she says, Luke is the gospel of mercy. The gospel of mercy. And here's why I think this matters to us, Chapel Hill. Why I think it's worth spending a year or a year and a half or ten years in the Gospel of Luke. I don't think most Christians really care about lost people. We say we do, but I don't think we live as if we do. Not really. You might have heard this last week among the many heavy things that were in the news. You might have heard of the abduction and the murder of a young kindergarten teacher in Memphis, Tennessee. Well, Eliza was a believer. She was a member of our sister congregation, Second Presbyterian Church, where we held General Assembly last year. Her pastor is my close friend. And so when she went missing, when she was lost to us, it, it hit me hard. I found myself thinking about and praying about that the, the whole week. It it is horrible, it is wicked, it is grievous. I grieve her loss, and I grieve for her family and for the church, and I am sure you do as well. But here's the deal. Luke reminds us that the world is filled with lost people whose lives are at risk, whose eternal lives are at risk. They're Every, and, and, and Luke reminds us that every one of these lost souls matters to God and grieves Him. That every lost soul is precious to Jesus. That is the reason that He came to this earth on a, a rescue mission to seek and to save that which was lost. And you were one of those at one time. If you are now in Christ, He came looking for you because you were lost and the question I think that Luke poses again and again through his parables and through returning to this theme throughout his gospel is, do you, my reader, care that people apart from Jesus are lost, eternally lost? And if you do, is there anything you would be willing to do to help lost people be found? I hope so. And from what I know about you, and I know you pretty well, I believe so. I believe that is your heart, but maybe you need some tools. Maybe you need some encouragement. And so that's what we're going to try to do this year. We're going to journey through Luke's gospel, and in parallel, we are going to launch this year-long initiative, which we are calling For the One. For the One. You'll hear about it again and again and again. And our hope, our goal is, is modest, I think, and attainable. And here it is. Every single believer who is within earshot of me, either online or in this church, 
Every single believer will devote themselves to praying for, being present to, and personally inviting one unbelieving friend in the year. One person in a year. Surely we can do that. One lost soul. Just one. And I hope you are willing to join in this journey. It will require us thinking beyond ourselves, beyond our interests, beyond our preferences, beyond our desire to be more and more blessed by God. It will require us to tune into the resonating heart of Luke, to resonate really with the heart of the Lord Jesus, to seek that one lost person. Who might that be for you? As I said, we're going to give you resources. I I ask every one of you to come Wednesday night. The ice cream is great. My talk is spectacular. <laughs> I hope you'll come and join us and hear more uh, about that this, this Wednesday night. But if you're going to do this, you're going to have to find your voice, beloved, one, one by one. You're going to have to find your own voice to speak witness to the name of Jesus. And I think that John helps us this morning. I think he can help us because as Isaiah prophesied, John was the voice. Not the voice as in on the, the TV uh, show, but the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And I'm sure that at times, John, as he was out there in the wilderness, he must have felt alone. He must have felt a little overwhelmed. He must have found it to be a daunting task to speak this lone voice into a, a culture that was so desperate and so bereft and so hungry for a word from God. And yet he spoke this word faithfully. He spoke to prepare them for the coming of a Messiah who he thought was just around the corner. They'd been waiting for hundreds of years, but John said, I think he's just around the corner. Now, I don't know if John knew for sure that Jesus was the Messiah. I think he did. I, I, I think they, he did. I mean, they were cousins. Their mothers were related so I suspect that John suspected that Jesus was the guy, but Jesus had not yet revealed himself to be so. Thirty years he labored quietly in his father's carpentry shop in Nazareth. So John could not be sure as he stepped into that wilderness area and began to proclaim the words of Isaiah and the promises of the Old Testament that there was going to come a Messiah who is going to change everything. He wasn't sure, but we are. Because Jesus has revealed himself now to us, to you. By the power of his spirit, he has shown himself to be who he is to you. So if you have met him, if you have been saved by him, then you are called to share his passion for lost people in a very dark and lost world. We need to find our voice, Chapel Hill. You need to find your voice. And if you're game, if you're willing to find your voice, however shy you might be, however insecure you might be, however daunting you might find it, just as John must have found it daunting at times, I think there are two things at least that kind of John can help us to learn, that can begin to launch us towards how we might learn to speak about the Jesus who has saved our lives. I want to talk about that. There are two things that he teaches us, and here they are. We must remove every obstacle, and we had better walk our talk. Two very simple things. We must remove every obstacle to Jesus and we must walk our talk. Let me share with you what I mean by that. First of all, if you're going to find your voice, you must remove every obstacle in the way. 
You must remove the hindrances that keep people from Jesus. That's what Isaiah was talking about in his prophecy offered hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. In the ancient days when a king traveled to a region, he was often preceded by an army of road builders. And so when they came to hills, they would tear them down and make them flat. When they came to valleys, they would fill them in. When they came to crooked roads, they would straighten them out and level them out. Their job, this army of road builders, was to eliminate every hurdle, every hindrance that might prevent the king from reaching his people. That is our calling too. We too must be in the obstacle-removing business. Alas, I think we too often are the obstacle installers. We make it harder for people to get to Jesus. We have, especially in this congregation, I know we have strong biblical views about really important issues, about morality and sexuality and gender and race and justice. And because we believe these things deeply and we hold to them because we believe God's Word teaches them, it is often easy for us to lead with these issues, especially in a culture that seems so averse to what we hold most dear. And so we lead with these issues and then the issues become obstacles that keep lost people from discovering the one person who can show them the truth about morality, and about gender, and about race, and about justice, and about all of these burning issues. Only Jesus. A friend of mine planted a church in Capitol Hill in Seattle years ago. And that's an area that is, has a large gay community. And this guy is a rock-ribbed, reformed, evangelical who affirms every biblical standard of morality and sexuality that we would affirm. And so you might think his ministry would seem out of place, that he would not be welcome in such a community. In fact, just the opposite was the case. He was incredibly effective. And so I asked him, how can you, with this message that you have, be so effective in this environment? And he said, because I had this same conversation again and again and again. And here's how it went. I quote him. A person would come to me and say, can I be gay? and be a Christian. And I would reply, you're asking the wrong guy the wrong question at the wrong time. And they were always confused, and so I would explain. You see, he would say, Jesus always asks the first question, and that is, will you follow me? Will you follow me? If you say no, then your initial question is irrelevant. But if you say, yes, I will follow you, then you get to ask your question. But you ask him, not me. Do I have an opinion? Sure. But my opinion is irrelevant to your relationship with Jesus Christ. End of quote. I don't know if our culture has ever been more divided over what was not too long ago commonly accepted uh, opinions about morality and gender or race or politics. But if we lead with these issues, we are setting up obstacles instead of removing them. Our job, if we're going to find our voice, is to smooth out access to Jesus, to make a way to Him and for Him. 
Jesus is the only one who can answer these deepest of questions, these deep, hard questions, and he will. But if they never meet him, if they never know of him, if they never follow him, then none of the answers will matter. So if we're going to find our voice, we need to begin to remove every obstacle we can. And secondly, we had better walk our talk. The most common gripe I hear against Christians is that we say we believe something, but we don't live as if we do. Have you heard that said of us? That our words don't align with our actions. You know, Jesus invented a term to describe this behavior. Do you know what that term was? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Did you know that? We today know that the word hypocrite means a person whose life does not align with what they claim to believe. But at the time of Jesus, a hypocrites was a theater word for an actor, and it meant literally mask wearer. In the ancient Greek theater, one actor would often wear many different masks playing different parts throughout the show. But before Jesus, no one had ever used the word to describe a mask wearer in real life, someone who pretends to be something that he is not. It was Jesus who coined that term. And this inconsistency is often the greatest ding against Christian believers. And it was certainly John's criticism of the religious people who had traveled miles and miles to come to him at the Jordan River in the wilderness. I want you to listen to the next part of the text. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized to him by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In our preaching classes, we were taught to connect early on with our listeners. Otherwise, we, we lose them, of course. So we are to tell a joke or to tell a story or find a way to capture their hearts or pique their interests. Like implying you were attacked by a tiger shark while snorkeling on a vacation. Well, apparently John never took our preaching classes. Because what was his heartwarming engaging, welcoming, seeker-sensitive opening line? You brood of vipers! A brood is a big ball of poisonous snakes. And Mrs. Weaver, you might want to close your eyes at this moment. I, I thought I'd show you a picture of what a brood of vipers looks like. Let's get more of the rattle. There we go. Now, that's a seeker-sensitive opening line to your sermon. Good morning, you big ball of poisonous snakes. And it's not quite the same as good morning, my sweetheart church. 
But John wasn't speaking to the non-believers. He was actually speaking to the religious folks. He was speaking to those who prided themselves on being the chosen people of God, the, the seed of Abraham. Because of their religion, they considered themselves better than others. They considered themselves favored. And John says, don't you dare play the Jewish card. God can create Jews out of rocks. He said, it is not your religious credentials that prove that you belong to God. It is the fruitfulness of your life that proves your repentance. And you, he said, you are fruitless. You are not walking your talk. I don't know what happened this summer to my prune tree. Last year was a bumper crop. I love Italian prunes. Anyone join me? It's probably my favorite. I love them. I guess they love them too. They're leaving. They're so upset. <laughs> I picked boxes of Italian prunes. I gorged on them last year. I dried the rest. I actually bought a dryer just to deal with my boxes of Italian prunes. I gave them away. I had so many. They are my favorite. This year, five prunes. Five prunes, literally. I picked them. Everyone was precious. I'm thinking about just putting them in a glass box or something. And I don't know if it was my improper trimming. My wife accuses me of that. I don't know if it was our crazy weather. Did, did anyone else have a similar experience with their fruit trees? All right. I have some great comfort to know that maybe it will come back next year. But for whatever reason, my tree was fruitless. And what's the point? John says to his religious listeners... And to us religious listeners, for the most part, if you claim to be a believer, but you have no fruit in your life to prove it, then you are just a phony. You are a brood of poisonous snakes. And remember, John was talking to the people before Jesus had come on the scene. They were living under the law. They didn't have the Holy Spirit who could help them. But if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit, which means that our fruit doesn't result from our grit and our determination from trying harder. Our fruit ought to be the fruit of the Spirit who lives within us, the natural result of surrendering to the Spirit of Christ who lives within us. But we will never find our voice for Jesus if our life shows no evidence that the Spirit of Jesus really lives inside of us. No one will take us seriously. We need to walk our talk so that was the message of John. And what was the response to this grouchy, not-so-seeker-sensitive sermon? Let me read the last part of it. And the crowds asked him, Well, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. This response... Isn't it, Pastor Gunnar? This is the response every preacher wants to hear from his listening congregation. <gasps> what shall we do, Pastor? You love hearing that response. What shall we do? Three times the crowd asked that same question. What then shall we do? In other words, 
John, what is the fruit of repentance in our lives? And so he answers them very practically. To one group he says, be more generous. Share clothing with those who don't have it. Share food with those who don't have it. You might ask yourself, do I have the generosity fruit in my life? Am I a generous person, an expression of the giving of God? I'll tell you, candidly, our giving has taken a real hit these last eight months. It's been rough. Uh, not surprisingly, perhaps. But when you have an opportunity to give, when you're offered a chance to give, are you eagerly doing that as a gift to God and a chance to participate in the ministry of your church? Or do you leave that generosity fruit to someone else? Are you generous? And then a second group stand up. It's the tax collectors. And they say, what do we need to do, John? They were the most despised group in Judaism. They were all considered traitors to their people. Collaborators. Apparently, we are going to be hiring 87,000 more tax collectors in the coming years. That'll be exciting. So, what would we hope for from them? The same thing that we would hope for back then. Honesty, fairness, reasonableness. The same fruit, frankly, that we'd expect from any business person who claims the name of Jesus. Are you fair? Are you honest? Is that your fruit? And then a third group spoke up. They were the soldiers. They weren't probably Roman soldiers by the name that's used, by the word that's used. They were probably temple soldiers, Jewish temple soldiers, and they said, what shall we do? They were men who had power over, over others. What fruit should we bear, they said. And John kind of puts it this way, don't be a bully. Don't use your position of power to take advantage of people. I don't know if we've ever seen positions of legal and political power weaponized as we are seeing right now. Our highest offices and our once revered institutions now seem to us threatening at times, ruthless at times. If you are a person of power and influence, John says, don't be a bully. Wield your power fairly. Do you care that the people you love are lost? If you are going to find your voice, if you are going to be for the one in your own life, then right here is a good starting point from the guy who started it all. Remove every obstacle to their faith that you can. Point them to Jesus and walk your talk. Live lives that are so fruitful, so genuine, that your friend will look at his own fruitless, barren life and long for something more than that. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If you believe that, if you believe that, then isn't it time that you found your voice. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that in us. We thank you that we don't have to just gen this up from within us, that we don't have to try harder and be more determined. We thank you that if we will surrender to you, it is your desire to seek and save lost people and that we will be a tool that you will happily use. And so Father, I ask this day as we launch this new year, I ask that we would start right here that we would say in our hearts, I am willing to be a voice for the Lord Jesus. I don't know how. I'm a little intimidated. I don't even know where to start. But I'm willing. 
Lord, maybe it will start right here. Maybe we'll stop leading with issues, with divisive headlines that turn people off and don't give them a chance to, to even discover the Jesus who has the answers to these things. Or maybe it will start right here where we take a hard look at our own lives and say, I am not walking my own talk. I am not consistent. I am a hypocrite in this respect. Lord, if that's where we begin today, if that's what the work your Spirit does in us today, that would be a good thing. We desire to seek lost people and to introduce them to the only one who can save them. And so may our hearts be open to that mission and call. And may our lives be open to your Spirit who will make it possible. For we pray it in the name of our Savior and Seeker, the Lord Jesus Christ. today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.